Blog Talk Radio. This is Marcia Joyner with Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty, for having the shows for us. The reason for this show is to warn people that hospice you once heard was compassionate and came in at the end of life to give care and support. Support is no longer the hospice in many cases. Some of you may have had very positive experiences with hospice and received compassionate care for your loved ones. Many of our guests, as well as myself, have not experienced that kind of hospice. We don't say that all hospices are bad, but many are rogue and they hasten death without the patient's knowledge or consent. Someone pointed out to me today that we keep calling this stealth euthanasia, which what we mean by that is it happens right in front of your eyes. You don't know that it's happening. You trust what the doctors say. And stealth euthanasia, it is, but it's murder. Many of our guests have lost people and their loved ones to this and their, their death has been hastened with being sedated with opioids, antipsychotic drugs, until they die from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. The last days of their life are taken from the patient and from their family. They don't get to say goodbye. The reason I do this show is my mom was one of those who was cruelly murdered in June of 2017 in a hospice in Georgia. It took my sister and me six months to find out that our case wasn't unique and it had been happening across the country. That's when I met Ron Panzer, who was our guest a couple of weeks ago. Our purpose is to warn you before you allow them to give your loved one any medications or yourself when you're alert and the medical profession wants to give, give them any medications that you check the medications out first. Google them, ask questions. And if you don't want them to give it to it, you have the right, and you have the right to take your loved one out of that environment. That's why we have these shows. Tonight, we're privileged to have Dr. Paul Byrne with us. He is a neonatalist and a clinical professor professor of pediatrics. And while he has a background with premature babies, he is no stranger to life being taken before its time, and he advocates for anyone who cannot speak for themselves. He is the producer of a film, Continuum of Life. He's an author of Life Support and Death, Beyond Brain Death, and Brain Death is Not Death. He has presented testimony on life death death issues to nine state legislatures, and he has openly opposed Dr. Jack Kevorkian. He's authored articles in medical and law journals against euthanasia, abortion, and brain death. He is a steadfast pro-life advocate, and a supporter of the American Life League, and he focuses on end-of-life issues. He was also the co-founder of the Life Guardian Foundation, which we'll get into later because they have a lot of important information on that page. A bit about him personally, he was married to Shirley for 48 years until she passed on Christmas Day in 2005, naturally. 
They are proud parents of 12 children and grandparents of 36 grandchildren, and he has five great-grandchildren. Paul, I'd like to give you an opportunity to make some opening statements, if you would like, before we go into some questions. So we are honored to have you with us. Marcia, thank you very much for inviting me to be on your program. The issues that have to do with life and death are across the board, and and uh, there are many in the pro-life movement that focus on the issue of abortion, and uh, abortion is certainly uh, a serious matter, and and uh, it's the uh, ending the life of an un- unborn baby uh, who's defenseless, and uh, uh, in my own situation, so far as my practice of medicine is concerned, I am a pediatrician, and uh, I was uh, one of the founders of the neonatal intensive care unit at Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in 1963. And what was happening at that time is that essentially every baby uh, that had trouble with breathing that was less than three pounds and four ounces died. It was 100% mortality, and it seemed to, uh, um, I would say, many of us at that time, although it was not a large number, uh, uh, it seemed like we should be able to do something. And and so we began, and when we began, we really had no treatments, uh, and we didn't have any ventilators that would uh, would be effective on newborn babies. So ventilator for uh, a premature baby had to be in, uh, invented, and that ventilator that was invented for the two-pound baby, uh, keep in mind the two-pound baby, the ventilator has to be very sensitive. It has to be very gentle. It has to be very precise. Well, that ventilator that was invented for that two-pound baby is the same ventilator that's used for all ages now. And and uh, and it comes right out of taking that situation that was considered to be hopeless at that time. The only, only thing when we started, the only thing we did when a, uh, a baby weighed two pounds or two and a half pounds and had trouble with breathing, uh, we would essentially uh, 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 observe them and uh, come back. Within 24 hours, at the very most, 48, and pronounce them dead. Uh, if they believed in baptism, we would see that they got baptized, but we had no treatments. And and by uh, taking that situation, that uh, that there was no tr- treatment. Out of that came not only treatment for those little babies. Now most all of them live. Uh, it's just the very tiniest and the very uh, uh, the very immature that don't survive. They all, it's it's uh, such a change. The other thing I'll just mention that that uh, is important is that little babies have small amounts of blood, and so uh, micro techniques for analyzing the blood had to be invented. And that micro those micro techniques are used for analyzing the blood of all of us. I mentioned those two things because. By t- taking those little babies that seem to be hopeless and saying, let's uh, see what we can do, not only did treatments get better for those premature babies, but things that came out of that, like the ventilator, like microtechnique, affected 
uh, affects all of us. Now, if, if you go on in to where and uh, you're most very interested in in uh, hospice and for reasons that that happened in your life that draw your attention to it, uh, um, uh, the situation so far as having respect for life. Uh, the respect for life must be from true conception until true death, and and what happens is if we don't respect the life at any time, uh, whether that be in the very young or or the very old or the um, uh, the the, uh, the very sick, uh, those that are uh, unconscious, uh, unable to um, uh, to defend themselves, if if we do not respect their life then it's uh if we don't respect the life of anyone then it's just a matter of time until there's someone else the life we don't respect until it gets to where the life of every one of us is is affected and the hospice uh, is is uh, uh is uh, uh very important and and um uh, uh, it's of some interest that that at the same time when I was uh, uh, dealing with the issues that ha- have to do with brain death and and uh, and related matters, uh, there were other organizations, Euthanasia Society of America, and that kind of thing. And there are a number of common denominators, and the uh, uh, the people that were involved with uh, uh, with uh, getting um, euthanasia going in the United States were the same ones that were involved with getting brain death to be accepted. And uh, sometimes people don't see the uh, identification uh, uh, between them, but they are all uh, related is what I would say. And then uh, uh, the, the hospice, uh, when... When it uh, was started, uh, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sure that it seemed to be a, a good thing to do. But you've had uh, experience that that uh, uh, was not positive, and those of us that pay attention to hospice have such experiences. And and uh, uh, and of course, they uh, uh, they have put together hospice and palliative care and they actually have developed a, a subspecialty or specialty in medicine uh, for for palliative care and hospice and lumping them uh, um, uh, together and and um, and and of course the hospice the uh, to uh, for a patient to get into hospice, um, often it was required to have two doctors to say that the patient would be dead within six months. Well, uh, um, some experiences that that I had had in, in uh, my, with my own uh, life, my own relatives, my uh, a cousin who uh, had uh, a cancer of the lung and and uh, really did everything she could to uh, get treatment for herself. Uh, uh, then got put into hospice, and and uh, so my wife and I go to see her, and and 
uh, she is uh, pr- pretty sleepy, and I, I asked the nurse if they would just hold off on giving her medication so that we would be able to talk with her, and when we were gone just a few minutes, why medication was given anyway. Uh, so that's one of the uh, ex- experiences that uh, uh, that I have myself. Um, the the uh, m- more recently, a good friend of mine who was uh, 94 years old um, and um, uh, was um, oh active, alert, uh, 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 mentally she was uh, fine uh, and. Uh, uh, she was uh, taken on a picnic with a group and uh, fell uh, backwards, uh, hitting her shoulder. Um, and uh, and uh, she did have uh, uh, injury to the body of the vertebrae, which doesn't cause any kind of paralysis, uh, some pain and some discomfort from it, but not a great deal of problem. Uh, and... Um, uh, and then what happened was her niece had power of attorney, and her niece put her on hospice. So in a few days when I went back to see her, I asked her, uh, uh, my friend, if she wanted me to pray, and she said yes. And as she started, as I started to pray, and as she uh, started to sit up, the attendant said something, and with that, the hospice nurse arrived uh, to uh, give her an injection. And when I asked what that was, it was uh, morphine and Ativan. And it was about 48 hours until she was uh, no longer on Earth. Uh, and uh, and it, it was an example of, of where the power of attorney, uh, if the power of attorney um, makes a decision, there isn't anything that anybody can do much to stop it. Power of attorney, that is uh, uh, power given to someone to speak for you when you can't speak for yourself. It's important to make sure that that, uh, someone will be there to protect and preserve your life. Uh, And that's all the power of attorney should be able to do is to protect and preserve your life. And and, uh, uh, in this case, it happened to be a relative who had power of attorney, and really there's nothing anybody can do to, uh, at least um, there's very little anybody can do to overcome that. Uh, The other thing I would uh, mention so far as hospice is concerned is that that, uh, uh, what I see happening, and I had this, situation with my own wife that that um, if I would have agreed to hospice, then uh, some of her uh, home health needs uh, uh, would have been paid for, but in, in order to do that, I would have had to give up her own doctors and turn her treatment and care over to hospice doctors. And I was not about to do that. And but on the other hand, I was able to to uh, do other things to help my wife. Uh, but uh, but it takes uh, money to do that. And our system is such. And I have learned many things about the system from uh, from my wife being ill and then uh, 
my sister, who is 97, and things that we've gone through with her. Uh, and and uh, what happens is that Medicare will pay for something according to the illness for a certain number of days, and then there'll be a certain number of days that will be paid for in what they call rehab, but of course those are nursing homes, and uh, some are better than others, I can tell you that much, and some are not as good as others, which is another way to say the same thing. Uh, but what happens, though, uh, is that the financial support runs out. And then what will happen is under the current Medicare situations, if they uh, if they get put in hospice, uh, they uh, will get uh, their care paid for. And so it becomes a... a financial incentive uh, for people to go into hospice and the people are not equipped to to, uh, deal with it so far as taking care of their mother or father or their their loved one. So all of these things are going on and you, everybody learns it when they get in the system. They, They think everything is okay and everything is there to take, take care of them. And then they find out from their own experience that that um, things aren't always there uh, to protect and preserve their life, and and um, and and to uh, um, put in another thing that I uh, uh, deal with, and and I began to deal with this part of it in 1975. Remember, I started the special care nursery in 1963. And uh, by that time, we were uh, progressing to where uh, we were able to help babies more by the time we got to 1975. And Joseph uh, was born very prematurely and was on the ventilator for several weeks, and he uh, uh, would not move or not respond, and a brainwave test was done on him, and the brainwaves were flat, and it was interpreted as consistent with cerebral death. And this was repeated in about two days and was unchanged, and it was suggested to stop treating him. But we continued to treat him, and eventually Joseph got off the ventilator. Joseph got out of the hospital, went home, uh, went to school, uh, got excellent grades in school, ran track, played baseball. He's married, has three children. So that began my study of brain death. And and uh, I, I was in academic environment at that time, uh, a professor of pediatrics, and and uh, we um, tried to do things, uh, make advances in accord with uh, uh, scientific uh, principles or principle of scientific studies, that kind of thing. And so, 1975, when Joseph had consistent with cerebral death written on his chart and it did not fit the clinical situation of Joseph, I did begin my study immediately, but by the time about six months went on and Joseph was continuing to live, I began investigating uh, what this thing called brain death was all about. And at that time, it did not apply to infants. In fact, it didn't apply to anybody under the age of five. And that didn't make any sense to me. How could there be something happening to the brain in somebody who is six 
but it wouldn't be happening to a brain in somebody who's four. It didn't make any sense, just that part of it. So uh, and investigating it, 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 it became clear that brain death was invented in 1968, and I really mean it was invented. It was not based on any kind of uh, scientific studies that would be acceptable at, uh, uh, for anything else in medicine. And and uh, and basically what they did in 1968, because they wanted to do a heart transplant, and the fact of the matter is they had done at least two heart transplants, maybe three that I know of uh, uh, before that, and uh, uh, they cut the beating heart out of uh, uh, a person in South Africa, and then they cut the beating heart out of a baby in Brooklyn, New York, and it was illegal in Brooklyn. It was immoral. And so uh, uh, what they did is set up a committee at Harvard known as the Harvard Committee, and the Harvard Committee uh, uh, published an article called A Definition of Irreversible Coma. And out of that article grew brain death. And basically what it says is with, that when somebody is unconscious on a ventilator, uh, they uh, even while their heart was beating and had circulation and respiration, they could be called uh, dead. And and uh, they they did it without any uh, any studies on uh, uh, animals, dogs, cats, rats. Uh, they didn't do any studies on human beings. They just invented it. And and uh, and remember that happened in 1968. Joseph didn't come into my life until 1975. So from 68 to 75 or thereabouts. I was like all the other doctors. I thought that whatever was happening in with this these issues of brain death that that they uh, that it was in accord with good medicine. 1975, 76, it became clear to me that it was not in accord with good medicine, and I published the first article in 1977 and published an article in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association in 1975 taking a stand against these uh, uh, against brain death and I've been taking the stand ever since now why is it so important to what you're uh, interested in Marcia it's it's because what they did in 1968 when they could call somebody dead while the heart was beating in circulation then why can't they take somebody who has a serious illness and do things like give them less treatment, like give them uh, uh, medications, like morphine, like Ativan. Why not be able to uh, do that to them uh, if at the same time you can call somebody else with a beating heart circulation? If you can call them dead and cut their organs out, that is cannibalize them while they're still alive, then why isn't what it's it's much less to just give them morphine and adamine until they're dead. Uh, and and these issues, I think, are related. Uh, every now and then I run, to, run into somebody and said, well, where are the scientific articles that tie these two things together? 
And and uh, uh, the only thing I can uh, tell you is that that the people that were involved with uh, starting brain death, many of the same ones are the same ones that are involved with propagating hospice and palliative care. So with that, I'll stop and and uh, see what you and I can uh, talk about. <laughs> okay. So since we've got already started with the brain death, let me kind of go over that um, since we're there. So the fact that somebody is declared brain dead because they haven't done any research and they don't know what you feel, even if they say you don't have brain waves, is it actually known that when you go to cut somebody's heart out that they are not alive, that they don't feel anything? Well, first of all, they are alive. Uh, uh, Every time an an organ is taken, it's a healthy organ. Who would want to get an organ that wasn't healthy? Well, where do you get healthy organs? You get them from living persons. Right. You You can't get that from a cadaver. Can't get it from a cadaver, and and so so uh, uh, so far as uh, uh, brain death is concerned, what what that means is is it's really brain washing is what it is because you hear brain death and and part of how brain washing is done is just give people two words and and uh, and they will hear the most prominent word. So you give them brain depth, and they hear depth, and and uh, it, it's um, in some ways it's similar to life insurance. Uh, you hear life insurance. <clears throat> Excuse me. You think life, but in fact it's death. But who would buy death insurance? Uh, and yet life insurance has nothing to do with life. It only has to do with death. But they couldn't sell it if they called it death insurance, so they call it life insurance. Brain death uh, 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 only got, gets into your head that somebody is dead if you if you take the or ordinary person and ordinary folks know things of, about um, creatures. They know things about their dog, their cat. They know things about uh, 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 about earthworms. They know things about birds. And and they know that they have life and and uh, and of course the uh, study of that life is biology, and they also know that there is something uh, uh, that that's death, and death is without life. Well, so uh, if if they were to uh, uh, think about the bird that they find, if the uh, bird has evidence of life, you don't call it dead. Uh, if your pet dog uh, or cat uh, if the heart is beating uh, and and uh, and you know that they wouldn't you wouldn't call your pet dog dead. You, you might, the dog can have a serious problem. The cat can, but not not dead. Well, what brain death is is calling somebody dead when they have a beating heart in circulation, and and uh, they're not truly dead. They are all alive. Everybody who's called brain death is alive. Everybody. There's no exception. And every one of them has a beating heart and circulation. Well, what what happens? You go to the license bureau to get your driver's license for the first time or to get it removed 
uh, or to get it renewed, and they ask you, do you wish to be an organ donor? They don't tell you that to be an organ donor, you have to have a beating heart circulation. They don't tell you that. They, they don't That's tell you. They don't tell you that the way they take the organs under those circumstances is they make an incision from the neck to the pubis. It, it's uh, literally called a two-foot incision. Uh, and and uh, when they o- open up the chest, they see the beating heart. Everybody in the operating room sees the beating heart. They all know that they're alive, uh, and but but what it is is they they want to get those organs because they uh, there are people out there that that are uh, claiming a need for those organs. They have a desire to get an organ uh, uh, for themselves, and they have. Uh, a lobby to get organs. They, there are people out there campaigning to get organs. We we get we're uh, exposed to much advertisement. Give the gift of life. You know, be an organ donor. And and uh, um, and there, there's uh, uh, nobody that's campaigning out there. At least not very few. There's some of us that are out there trying to help people to know. That, that you must be alive to be an organ donor. So out, out of this, the people must learn to say no to being an organ donor. Uh, and and uh, they're, they're, uh, there's no way to get an organ from a cadaver. So they have to know that. The other thing that, 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 um, that happens in this declaration of brain death, and incidentally, 1968 was the Harvard criteria was published, and between 68 and 78, there were 30 different sets of criteria published, of which you could be dead by one but be alive by the others. And and but all of the sets of the of criteria, all have a a common test that's done with all of them, and it's called an apnea test. It isn't simply a test where you do a test on blood or you take an x-ray or something like that. It's a procedure, and the procedure is to take away the life-supporting ventilator and to take away the life-supporting ventilator for 10 minutes. They suffocate the patient for 10 minutes. It makes the carbon dioxide in the blood go up. And when the carbon dioxide in the blood goes up, that increases the swelling in the brain. It makes them get worse. They do this every time. So the audience must learn no to organ donation, and they must learn no to the apnea test. If they have a relative that's in the hospital, unconscious and on a ventilator, uh, they will want to uh, do an apnea test. They won't ask for permission. They go ahead and do it. Uh, they they do this to them, so you have to be alert to it, and you have to tell them up front you don't want the apnea test done. And and uh, these two notes yeah, are absolutely me, essential. Go ahead. Okay, just let me say that is not um, to be confused with a sleep apnea test that would be run. I just want to make right. that clarification. It's, so oh, it's a when good, they do that, they're clarification. Right. right. Good important okay. clarification because the the sleep apnea test is a done is, is a test that's done when people have irregular breathing and uh, 
done in a sleep apnea center. Sometimes they're done at home, uh, but that's mm-hmm. altogether different from the apnea test, which is uh, uh, which is better called a, a, a procedure, a procedure of an apnea test. It's something that's mm-hmm. done. And so the audience has to learn no to the, ap- the to the procedure of the apnea test and no to organ donation. And so with this test, test is it, okay. That's a different thing. Good point. Right. And you said that they won't tell you they're going to do it. They just go ahead and do it. So say, for instance, that somebody comes in and they're in a car wreck and they have a head injury and they're unconscious at the time. So that would be kind of like a situation where they would pull the plug on them for 10 minutes, which would cause the brain to swell more and would cause the patient to possibly then die so they could say their brain dead and then they could harvest your organs, right? Right. So a severe head injury, I think you had said there is a way to treat a severe head injury, right? Oh, there are treatments that... Sure. Give them a good there prognosis. Are treatments that are, but they, go ahead. Go ahead. There are treatments well, that are very say. helpful, like like some of them that you might hear about, it, like hypothermia. They reduce the body temperature, and and uh, and then one of the things that happens when the brain swells, uh, the uh, the hypothalamus, which is part of the brain stops making the thyroid stimulating hormone uh and and um and the thyroid stimulating hormone in just a few hours uh it isn't there so they get hypothyroid and the the hypothyroidism causes the brain to swell causes the heart not to function and you can do these things and it helps the patient who's unconscious and on a ventilator but you see what happens is much of this is controlled by the doctors, by the hospital, uh, by the system, and the system is all set up to get organs. You have to have uh, organs in order to have an organ transplant industry, which is what it is. It's an organ transplantation industry. It's it's, uh, coordinated by the federal government. And and it's it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Thirty-four billion dollars was billed in 2017 for organ transplants. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. It's larger than the abortion industry, and and all of it depends on getting healthy organs from living persons. And so the the uh, all of the essentially all of the hospitals are involved. Uh, the, the transplant doctors are involved. The intensive care doctors are involved. And while while many of them are doing everything they can to help the patient, they also are involved with getting the organs. And and uh, and and so the the system is there to uh, get organs. And then what happens is that that they don't want to waste money on somebody who's not going to get well. And so all of these things are there. And then people contact me because they they uh, uh, they have a, a son or a daughter that's uh, 
injured in an automobile accident. Um, they are off in another state because they've uh, been away at school or whatever it is, and that kind of thing. And uh, and uh, and uh, only to find out that that trying to do something uh, to help them is very difficult because the system is all set up to uh, uh, to get their organs and and uh, uh, and. The, the ones that are most vulnerable are the ones who are 30 and under, but it expands out from that. And, and uh, not, not too long ago, uh, and there was a, a lady who was 40, and, and I was in touch with her, uh, uh, her attorney, and he couldn't get the hospital records. I couldn't believe that he couldn't get the hospital records, but they, they won't give the records. So it, it's very difficult to help them. And so I couldn't believe, so I got on the plane. I was at the bedside with the attorney, with her husband, and the nurse would not even tell me her temperature, and they would not give us any records. We had to go to court to get a judge to rule to give us records just so we could see anything about it. But it, it's um, when you get involved with trying to help them, it's, uh, it's, it's a very um, closed thing because they don't want to give you the records because if they, give the, if they give the records, then you have a chance to help them. But they, uh, they won't give the records. They have all kinds of reasons why they won't give them, can't give them. I mean, I, Go through these things, even where the uh, the father will go to the record room. They won't give the records. Repeatedly go back. They won't give the records. And and if, if the records are such that that once they're given out, then more people know about them, and other things can uh, uh, can happen to help the patient. So these are just the things that that uh, that that go on. That many people. Uh, get in touch with me not only because of the issue of brain death but because of their loved ones uh, in terms of ventilators, feeding tubes, and those kind of things. And and many times they give up. Uh, uh, the system gives up because uh, they, they are somebody who was older not too long ago. A man got in touch with me about his mother uh, and the, uh, the situation was that, that because of circulation, had problem with circulation to her leg, and 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 so we um, figured out how if her, her uh, if she got a feeding tube and got nutrition and got the leg taken care of, uh, she could possibly live well. It's uh, several years now, and she lives very well with, uh, uh, with, without that leg. And the feeding tube was necessary only for uh, uh, maybe six weeks until her nutrition got better and she was able to eat again. And, and so uh, things that you can do to help people, even when they're very sick and, and, uh, and staying focused on protect and preserve life, uh, uh, and th- those are the key words that 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 I help people to uh, to know. They're not new words. It, it's just that the life is there, and then what do we do with our own life? Uh, is we should be protecting and preserving our own life and the life of our loved ones. And the only thing that doctors and nurses 
uh, ought to do is protect and preserve life. And I teach people yep. that if, if if they're asked, if the nurse is asked to do something, uh, if it will not protect and preserve life, then the nurse should just get away from it. It's not medicine. Uh, uh, medicine only protects and preserves life. Go ahead, Marsha. Well, you're absolutely right. That is exactly what it should be. Um, I wanted to ask you, go back on something you said earlier. When you were trying to get the records, and we talked about if you have the power of attorney, if the POA was there and asked for the medical records, could they demand that they're giving them to them? You can demand, but it isn't going to, it doesn't happen. My experience is it doesn't happen. Uh, uh, And I, I, I go through this where you have a POA or or a, a guardian, and to get the records, they they are so protective of the records. Uh, they they have learned that that um, uh, that if they um, keep control of the records, they have more control of the patient. Incidentally, they much some of these things grow out of how the uh, the HIPAA law is interpreted and. Uh, that HIPAA law is part of the system of death, uh, uh, and and um, we're all exposed to the HIPAA law when uh, um, we enter the hospital. They and, and we have to sign a document that says that uh, records can be released, and uh, but will only be released under certain circumstances. And and yet the the HIPAA law. Um, uh, uh, when I read the HIPAA law, I found 14 ways that the government can get your information without your permission and use it without your permission. And one of them is to get your organs for transplantation. And and uh, uh, it, it's, it's actually set, the uh, system is set up so that if somebody is unconscious and on a ventilator and it uh, it looks like they uh, might die uh, uh, before too long, it's obligatory that the organ procurement organization be notified. And that's part of the HIPAA law is in, uh, uh, in your records can all be transferred uh, and be made available to the organ procurement organization so they can determine if your organs are going to be good for someone else. Uh, and and all of that is built in. There's 14 ways that they can use your information without your permission, and we're we're all being exposed to the concept that the HIPAA law is necessary to protect your records. When in fact, I can absolutely assure you that when I went to medical school, just like everybody else went to medical school, uh, about the uh, first day of school. Uh, we are told about uh, hospital records and uh, matters with patients are private and not to talk about them in the cafeteria, not to talk about them in the elevator. And and we had it uh, uh, crammed into our heads uh, uh, to keep records private. The nursing schools all did the same thing. And so so then the HIPAA law was, was uh, propagated on the basis that there was some uh, need uh, to keep records private when, in fact, the uh, records were always kept private. But what 
uh, granted that there can be uh, somebody's going to leak things out, but for the most part, the uh, doctors and nurses protected the uh, uh, records and did not d- divulge what was in them. But the reason you had to have the HIPAA law was so you could get organs for transplantation. That's part of why the HIPAA law had to get passed. Uh, and oh, and uh, and the, and there are 13 other ways the government can get your information without your permission. And mo- most people uh, uh, don't pay attention to these laws. It takes a long time to read them and and uh, search them out and and uh, and the like. And when I uh, talk to attorneys who uh, uh, tell doctors what's uh, uh, in the in the HIPAA law, they don't tell these things about uh, how the HIPAA law can, is used to uh, for the government to get information without your permission. These, these, and well, see, yeah, and when these, you're, these, when... these things, Marcia, they're all interrelated. They're all interrelated to where the specialness of the person is, is not adhered to. See, the person's are living creatures, and uh, but but they aren't just living creatures, but they're special. Each person is special, and and uh, uh, those of us uh, that believe in the the soul, the living person is a unity of the body and the soul. But there's a metaphysical aspect, something beyond the physical, for each and every person, no matter what their beliefs are. Most everybody. Uh, has some thoughts or ideas about something that's more than just physical for the person. And so the the person is special. And as a doctor, I have the uh, a privilege to protect and preserve the life of these special persons. And, and, uh, uh, and then uh, when we're little babies, our mothers and fathers love us and protect and preserve us. When we get older, our children protect and preserve us. They love us, but we don't do anything to harm the baby. The children don't do anything to harm the parents. Granted, there are exceptions to these things, but my experience in life is that most people are good and they want to do the right thing. And and much of what gets done is in accord with the laws, but the laws in the United States are set up to be able to call you uh, uh, dead uh, when you're still alive. That's called the, the Determination of Death Act. Uh, uh, the Anatomical Gift Act is the, uh, the law that's set up that they get permission to get the organs. Uh, it's It's set up so so that it presumes that everybody intends to be an organ donor. Uh, uh, granted, you have to get permission from somebody, uh, but they intend to do it. So if they intend to do it, you can do every test on the unconscious person to determine if their uh, organs are good. Uh, and then, and, and so, so you have the anatomical gift act, the determination of death act, and you have the HIPAA law, and then you get into uh, things that have to do with with uh, Medicare and the hospice and the palliative of care. And, and there's bill introduced 
it's uh, 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 abbreviated Pochita, P-O-C-H-E-T-A, and you can look up what those letters are for, but it's to educate more people about palliative care. It's a terrible law. Uh, your listeners need to uh, check into it and get in touch with your, uh, uh, your congressman to try to keep that law from being passed. It will just propagate more and more the palliative care and, and the hospice. And palliative care, people don't realize that, that it's palliative care. The, the, the word palliative, P-A-L-L-I-A-T-I-V-E, Paul, the word Paul means to cover up. You, you might be familiar with that word with pallbearer. Uh, that's somebody at, 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 at a uh, funeral uh, right. helps to carry the co- coffin. Uh, uh, in the Catholic Church, when the coffin uh, uh, arrives at the door of the church, then a cover, a cloth cover, is put over the coffin, and that's called a pall. Pall means to cover up. Palliative what is it that they are covering up? And palliative care means little or no treatment and less care. Uh, and and they're uh, well, uh, well, hospice can say have two doctors who say you're going to be dead within six months. The the indications to put you into palliative care. If you're being screened for this, everybody who's a little bit older goes to the doctor, and most people that are a little bit older will identify with this because when they go in to see the doctor for anything, they are asked questions like, do you live by yourself? Do you need help in dressing? Uh, And what this is being screened for uh, is to determine if you can take care of yourself and screened for whether you have depression, you're being screened for anxiety, uh, these things, the the, um, the Medicare, the doctors get paid a fee for the visit. So we're everybody who's uh, in Medicare is encouraged to come in to see the doctor when you're well. Theoretically, it's to keep you well, but the system is to pay the doctor when you're well, and then when you're sick, it's to uh, uh, pay the doctor to get you into palliative care, which is less treatment and the system is like this, and I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm part of the system. I just get amazed at how uh, I go to the doctor, and the doctor spends uh, almost all the time putting check marks on, on the computer screen and hardly knows if I'm there or not. And But I have to go in because uh, it, I haven't been in for six months. It, I don't have to go in because I'm sick. I have to go in because it's six months. Why? They can get a fee for six months. And then, because I stay alert, I say, I find on the chart, screen for depression. Well, I had a bellyache from kidney stones, but I wasn't depressed. I was sick. Uh, screen for right. anxiety. Uh, I might have been anxious, but I didn't have anxiety. Uh, and and uh, But I right. look and on the work. chart, and I find these things. And but these these things are going on, and they're affecting everybody. And it it, it has to do with the system. And and uh, uh, we hear things how how, how uh, 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 Obamacare needs to 
be changed or whatever it is, and we have to have health care for everybody. But what we do need changes in the health care, but the people have to speak up, and the people want to be able to go to the doctor when they're when they're sick. Uh, and and uh, uh, but I don't know that anybody's too excited about going to the doctor when they're well. Um, so well, of anyway, course not. It's a, the medication. We have put people right. on so much medication that, you yes. know, medication for antibiotics and, you know, for heart, you know, if your blood pressure is too high or if it's too low or you're a little bit anxious or, and right. that's why you have to go back to the doctor because they will not give you the prescription. So they've kind of got you, pull you back in because you can't get your prescription refilled. But we are taught to trust the doctors and the medical profession because they are there to help us. And that is the sad thing now is that is not necessarily true. And and I'd like to at this point applaud you for the your position on all of this and taking care of people. You are certainly a doctor that I think there should be more like you out there because you care about life in general. And I think that's marvelous. So I, I do applaud you for that. Thank you for being one of the good guys. Well, thank you, and uh, and so um, I, I think that most doctors are good, and they're trying to do good. They, uh, I think that many times the doctors find themselves in a system that they don't really care for either. But uh, uh, as you know, they have to make a living, and they go along with it. Uh, uh, but I I think that um, uh, the system as it now exists will change. I just hope it changes for the better. But the, your listeners need to get involved. You need to uh, uh, learn about uh, about hospice. You need to learn about palliative care. You need to learn about brain death. You need to learn uh, about organ transplantation. And it is possible, uh, and this kind of program is the uh, is one of the ways to uh, educate about it. Uh, we have an organization, Life Guardian Foundation, and uh, they can look it up. It's www.lifeguardianfoundation.org. It's the three words together, lifeguardianfoundation.org. And th- there you will see um, uh, m- many of my presentations, and you'll see many things that have, have to do uh, with brain death and organ transplants, but we also deal with the other things. Like we give out a card. It's it's a, a a medical card, and it's designed to protect and preserve your life. And it says you want to be treated, uh, and and um, and on on uh, and you don't want to be an organ donor, and you don't want an apnea test. Uh, and so all those things are on that card. We encourage people to. Uh, get the cards from us and uh, sign them, witness them. And on the cards, you can designate someone to uh, speak for you uh, if you can't speak for yourself. And so you you can do that on the card. And I think it's important that uh, that everyone have someone to speak for them when they can't speak for themselves. And one of the groups of people that it's absolutely essential that they have a power of attorney and that is the uh, the youngster who reaches the age of majority, which is 18 in uh, many of the states. Uh, and uh, what happens is the 18-year-old goes off to college, 
and then they get involved in a serious situation, and no longer do the parents have anything to say about what happens to that that uh, uh, their child, uh, because the system is such that once you reach the age of majority, uh, the hospital then will go to the court, and the court will appoint a guardian. Uh, and and that guardian very likely will not be the mother or the father because they want to make it that it can be controlled, uh, uh, that the system can have control over it. And, and uh, these situations, I get involved with the, with the cases where they uh, have uh, uh, already gone to court and and got the guardian and that kind of thing, and then the father the father can't do anything about it. Uh, one of the saddest ones that I had to deal with was a, a, a little girl in Virginia who choked on popcorn, and and uh, and and in in the courtroom, uh, the, the court appointed another attorney to be the guardian. The father was in the courtroom. The mother was at the hospital with the, the, the little girl, uh, um, and uh, they there were six other children. Two of them had already reached the age of majority. Either of them could have been the guardian, but the court appointed another attorney to be the guardian. It was so awful for me to listen to the judge to ask the other uh, uh, other attorney, not not the father who was right there, not the attorney representing the, uh, the 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 father and the mother, but another attorney to represent the two year old girl who was in the hospital. It was so sad that uh, that that to have that happen. And so when you get into the guardians, especially when you have the you know mother father and, and you know so their little girl choked on popcorn. That's no reason to have another guardian appointed, but do, and and so when somebody gets to the age of 18, you must have a power of attorney. It's absolutely essential that the power of attorney, and and, and of course, I would expect that 18-year-old to uh, appoint their mother or their father. And incidentally, also you have to have a power of attorney when you're. Children go off and stay with grandmother for uh, uh, and grandpa for a week or something like that. And if the parents are out of the country or something like that, you have to have a power of attorney. We help people. We are not a legal firm, but we we uh, help people with uh, uh, getting their documents in order, and they can go to their attorney and get it taken care of. But but we help people with these things, and and uh, uh, and yes, what you're doing with the hospice and educating the people it's it's absolutely essential it's only one part of the system of death the, uh, you see the way that that I grew up and the way that I learned medicine uh, was uh, from the uh, uh, if you want to call it a culture of life it's really a gift of life but it revolved around life everything revolved around life it changed in 1960s, especially it changed in 1968 when they published the article about brain death. That changed so then doctors were able to call their patients dead when they were clearly alive, and it's still that. And that had a major change in the practice of medicine, and, and, uh, and so we're seeing the effect of it. 
in the presidential uh, 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 campaign uh, uh, um, a couple of campaigns ago uh, when they asked the the, uh, 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 President Obama uh, uh, about an older person and uh, that kind of thing, unconscious, and he said, "Well, she might have to take her medicine." And and uh, and I mean, it was right out there in the campaign for everybody to hear, and uh, everybody should have been very upset with that because that medicine is to make them get dead, uh, and and uh, and so so it's a, a system. It's it's uh, the medicine that is involved. Uh, the laws are involved, and I've learned not to expect help from the clergy. I'm, uh, I'm not against clergy. I'm not against doctors. I'm not against lawyers. Uh, uh, but in these matters of life and death, uh, it's a, a system of death. It does not revolve around a culture of life anymore. It's a system of death, and it's important for everybody to learn about it. And and uh, we need to have a change. The law ought to be such that no one should be declared dead unless there is evidence of death, you know, unless there is destruction of the the circulatory and respiratory system. Shouldn't be calling somebody dead when they have circulation and respiration. Now, if they have any response, I I can show you recordings of of, uh, patients that that are moving, their whole body is moving, and they're said to be dead. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Uh, um, uh, It's so ridiculous to see the chest open up and see the heart beating. It's so ridiculous to call them dead. They're not dead. They're alive. And yet, legally, they're dead. And um, uh, with the way the Determination of Death Act is set up, and at that point, they could, they're considered to have no value other than perhaps having an organ that somebody can yes. harvest. Right. Yes. Um, let me go back they, to they, a couple of things that you said because I, I want to make this really clear. The Uniform um, Anatomical Gift Act overrides. If you've gone out there and you've told somebody on your driver's license you do not want to be an organ donor, this act overrides that. And um, what Dr. Byrne was talking about, on their website, they have a medical card to protect and preserve life that you want to get and fill it out and keep it in your wallet or your billfold because it says that I do not want to be an organ donor. And that's a sad thing to say now because you always felt like you were doing something good. If I'm gone and somebody can use my eyesight or my heart or, you know, a lung or a kidney, liver, we wanted to be compassionate and give that. But as has been pointed out, you put yourself in a really bad position because they're not going to fight hard to save you because your organ is going to be worth more money to them to give to somebody else. So this card is to protect and preserve your life. It's very important that you go fill this out, get it notarized, signed, and on the power of attorney for health care. I went to your site, and it for $2.00. You can get this. It's a digital file. You can bring it down and you fill it out. There are three different files there. One of them is the power of attorney for health care, the directions to protect and preserve life for power, by power of attorney for health care, 
and the one that you talked about for minors. And for $2 nominal fee, you can get these documents, get them signed, keep them with you, have somebody that you say is going to take care of you that will value your life. And sadly, we see cases where the individual, whether it's the spouse or the child, they don't want to deal with the elderly person anymore, and they are actually involved in their murder with hospice. So if there's any chance that that's happening in your family situation, you don't want to put that person to have power of attorney over you. That's, so you need to be really sure who, that the person wants to keep you alive more than to let you go because you're a burden or because you have money that they want. So yes. I just wanted and to the, make sure that those, that, Marcia, those documents are out there. The way I say so that, Marcia, you want to give make sure that you designate someone to speak for you. That's Make sure that, that someone loves you and right. not that that someone would love to get rid of you. Exactly, exactly. And the website, again, is www.lifeguardianfoundation.org, and that's all together. And there is a ton of information out there. So I'm sorry, I just wanted to um, make sure that yep. everybody knew about that. So um, yes. you mentioned the feeding tube. Um, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is if someone is given a feeding tube, that sometimes hospice says, you know, we don't want to do that. But because you put somebody on a feeding tube, does that necessarily mean that they're never going to come off of the feeding tube and they'll never be able to eat again? I mean, isn't it no. just to give them sustenance for that period of time? Yes, it is. And, and uh, uh, you know, there are advantages to being a doctor for a long time. But when I was a much younger doctor, the only kind of tubes we had were rubber tubes. In fact, the matter is, when I got into medicine, the IV tubing was rubber tubing is, is what it was. And uh, it would have to be washed out and used again for another patient is the way it was. It was before plastics. And and then so far as getting back to the feeding tubes, they, they were just uh, rubber. Uh, and then plastic was invented. And then the first plastics were not like the plastics are now. The plastics now uh, that, that we use for feeding tubes that, uh, are just uh, like cooked spaghetti. They're soft, so pliable, and they stay that way. And then so far as a, a, a feeding tube is concerned, uh, with taking care of premature babies, feeding tubes, are. we do that all the time. We feed the little babies with feeding tubes. And, and uh, for uh, 50 years, we put a feeding tube through the, uh, uh, the belly wall of the baby when, uh, at the time of operation, because it made it so much easier to take care of them with uh, the feedings that we gave them and that kind of thing. And so uh, we had lots of experience. Then where we get up to modern times now, the the uh, feeding tube that, that is commonly used is called a, a PEG tube, it, it, uh, the P-E-G, all capital letters, and it means... Uh, per esophageal gastrostomy. The per means, as a Latin word, means through. And then the esophagus, esophageal, the esophagus is the swallowing tube between the mouth and the stomach. And then the gastrostomy, gastro means stomach and uh, opening to the stomach. So that, that feeding tube 
I have patients that that I've um, uh, gotten them to go into the hospital to uh, as an outpatient and got that feeding to put in. They use local anesthetic. Uh, they um, can with a scope look down the uh, the esophagus and then with the light on the end show where the incision needs to be made. And with local anesthetic, it can be put in sometimes as quick as 10 minutes. It's common, 20 minutes. Uh, the feeding tube can be put in, and then it makes it easier to take care of the patient and easier to feed them. And if they get nutrition for a period of time, then they get well again, and then they get back to where they can uh, eat in the regular way. That that ha- happens uh, often enough to that uh, I can assure you that it does happen. Uh, just because you give them a feeding tube doesn't mean they'll be on the feeding tube the rest of their life. Uh, on on the other hand, you see what happens to live on Earth, Mars. Uh, you you have to have water. If if you don't have water in one to two weeks, everybody is dead. Uh, and and you have to have food. If you don't have food in one to two months, everybody is dead. Uh, you have to have oxygen. In a matter of minutes, without oxygen, uh, 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 you you will be dead. And so to live on Earth, you have to have oxygen, you have to have water, you have to have nutrition, and there has to be an, uh, a way for urine to get out and for bowel movements to get out. Those things are absolutely essential to uh, live on Earth. And and without them, death occurs quickly. And and uh, and uh, in modern times, and remember, it's in uh, within my lifetime when we've gone from the feeding tube that was rubber and not easy for the patient and lots of disadvantages to where we have modern plastics that that can be done very easily. And so, so uh, it, it's the kind of thing, and every patient is different, but but uh, most of the time, uh, uh, water helps to keep them alive and water helps to keep them comfortable. I say water, we don't use just plain water when we put it in the vein. It'll be sugar, glucose water we talk about, or glucose with uh, some lactated ringer, a little bit of salt in it because it's not irritating, that kind of thing. And, and uh, we, we learned a, a long time ago if you just give somebody glucose, then they don't lose salt. Uh, they they don't make ketones and uh, acetone, and you can smell it in their breath sometimes. Uh, and that makes them uncomfortable. And if you just give them some sugar and some water, they're so much more comfortable. And and uh, and these kinds of things that that uh, can be done to help help patients. And when uh, patients aren't able to help themselves, then we do things to help them because they're special. Each person is special, and and uh, and and so uh, and unique. And so so um, there are different ways that we can help patients to uh, uh, to to live. Now the other thing, Marsha, I'll bring up uh, that that uh, you and I have talked about briefly, and. That's a, a do not resuscitate order, and and right. uh, I 
I am very concerned about a do not resuscitate order. It's a very broad order is is what it is. And if if uh, if you ask somebody what what do they mean by do not resuscitate, they may or may not give you some kind of answer that if they stop breathing, they uh, uh, don't want to have anybody help them to breathe or whatever it is. But it's a very broad order, and I'll, I'll use an ex- example of um, uh, of uh, if, if I and I as a doctor um, expected to uh, uh, to write an order that's very specific, for instance, and and if I would uh, write an order or tell a nurse an order, a very uh, broad order, like if I said to the nurse. Give antibiotics. The nurse would say, "Well, doctor, what kind of antibiotics?" And I said, "Well, make it ampicillin." And then what would she say? She would say, "Well, how much?" And so then I'd have to tell her how much. And then she would say, "By what route? Uh, uh, do you mean by mouth or in the vein or how do you mean it?" And then she would say, "How often?" So you see, doctors are used to writing specific orders. Uh, what the medication is, how often to give it, uh, what route to give it, but we're, we we don't write broad orders. So if it gets into matters of life and death and not resuscitating, how can we write a broad order of do not resuscitate, which can mean uh, no uh, uh, no help with breathing, uh, no, no tube down the throat to help with breathing, it, it can mean no electric shock to shock the heart back. Uh, it, it, it can mean um, that, uh, not answering the alarm when it goes off quite so soon. It, I have uh, seen it uh, once somebody uh, uh, got into this do not resuscitate um, uh, uh, kind of situation, uh, then maybe uh, uh, pastoral care doesn't get called quite so soon uh, maybe they get called sooner uh, but but there's a effect of of do not resuscitate so I don't think that they should ever use a do not resuscitate order uh, if if uh, if there is a situation uh, and there's really only three situations that you have to uh, uh, do something about, or the the patient will die, and that uh, quickly. And that is, if if a patient stops breathing, you have to do something, or they're going to die quickly. If their heart stops, you have to do something, or they're going to die quickly. If their blood pressure goes down, you're going to have to do something, or they're going to die quickly. And those are the only three situations that that you. Um, uh, that you have to, uh, if if you don't want them done, uh, then and there could be a reason why not to do some of those, whatever they are. I would accept that. That, but it would have to be a specific order for that particular situation at that time, and it needs to get reevaluated again tomorrow. It would be something to get you through the night, or to get you through this current situation. But it certainly ought to be reevaluated at least every day, so that that um, that that if you're going to um, decide that somebody's not going to get something, it ought to be a specific. Not it would be not getting a specific something. 
uh, and uh, I remember a little uh, uh, boy who was declared uh, brain dead, and the nurse called and said his blood pressure was going down. So I went over uh, to the hospital and talked to his mother, and I said, uh, his, uh, your, your son's blood pressure is going down. Uh, do you want me to do anything to uh, help the blood pressure? She said, well, what can you do? I said, well, we can give medication, and sometimes the uh, medication helps. And she looked up at me and said, well, get on with it. So I gave the little boy medicine for his blood pressure, and he lived 20 years and never got anything wow. for his blood pressure again. And and uh, if he had had a do not resuscitate order, he never would have gotten the blood pressure. And he also uh, very likely the nurse would not have called me to see him. And and no. so I see a do not resuscitate as a uh, as not a good medical order. Um, we we do have a booklet that that uh, that that people can get from American Life League. It's called life life support and death. And so so I would encourage people to get that. And in that booklet, we do address these issues about uh, what, do you, what do you do. And, and the basic principle is protect and preserve life. If you get into a particular situation of deciding that something uh, is not going to be done, well, then at least make it a specific thing for a specific amount of time and not for a very long time until you reevaluate. Well, I, to me personally, I will not ever sign a DNR. And my dad lives with me. He's 91, and we've torn his up. So DNRs are not something. I didn't know about the organ donor, but, you know, that I'm going to also take care of since I read on your site about it. So I just personally, I say, do not sign a DNR, my personal opinion. Let me um, just kind of throw this out there. If anybody's listening and you have a question or a comment, if you select one on your telephone, it will put you in a queue with Marty, and then you can ask a question. Um, but I wanted to um, go back to your co-founding of Life Guardian Foundation, so can you tell us, I know that you've got a lot of forms out there, but what is the mission of that site and what can it do to help some of our listeners besides the documentation that we've talked about? Well, basically our, our goal and objective is to protect and preserve life from conception until true death. And we don't have any exceptions to that. And actually, we use the term uh, uh, true conception and true death. And the uh, conception and death, these are words that have meaning, but they get distorted. And, you know, like uh, with conception, they try to make conception be implantation. Well, that's just foolish. Implantation uh, occurs about a week after conception. And, and so to say, well, we're not going to call it conception until implantation, well, that's just foolish. It's, uh, it, and, and yet there are people out there that advocate such things. So I say, well, it has to be true conception. Uh, and then so far as death is concerned, you have these issues about brain death, cardiac death, and whatever other kind. But the word death means the absence of life. 
it's the it's the demarcation point where life ends and and uh, uh, death is there. And then what you have is at that point the remains of someone. It, it's a cadaver, it's a dead body. And what do you do with cadavers? You uh, uh, embalm them, bury them, cremate them, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and and so uh, uh, with brain death, do you embalm them? Ah, you would kill them. Uh, uh, and obviously you can't cremate them. So what is this thing called brain death? It, it, uh, right. it, it mean, means that you're alive and not dead. You're alive. And, and so, well, recently, so our organization, um, and, and, and why do we have the organization? Well, we have the organization because we, we are a pretty uh, simple organization. We protect and preserve life, and we don't have any exceptions. And, you know, I... Um, I, I've been at this uh, for a long time, and and um, and uh, there are not a lot of people that will publicly take a stand against uh, uh, um, brain death and organ transplants. Uh, I think inside their hearts they know that somebody is not dead when their heart is beating and there's a circulation. And and that there's not a lot of uh, organizations uh, that will take a stand. American Life League does, um, and Judy Brown and American Life League uh, is um, uh, takes a stand, uh, protects and preserves life across the board. Um, I I don't speak for any of the other organizations. Uh, I worked closely with Judy Brown all these years, and uh, and so. Uh, she is an American Life Leader supportive, and actually they have printed that book, Life, Life Support, and Death, which is co-authored with eight other doctors uh, and a, um, a, a priest and a, a, an attorney. And that's a very good book for everybody to get. And and uh, it's the say the name of that, that again. It's called Life, Life Support, and Death. And you can I I. Um, It used to be that you had to purchase it uh, for $3 from American Life League, but I've heard that it's uh, uh, on their website now that you can uh, uh, download it. But in any event, uh, that's where you can get it, and it's where you get the best direction. Please pardon my bias, but I had a lot to do with writing it. Uh, But but it's the best, uh, the booklet that has the, most information to protect your life, and I encourage everybody to get that that book. Um, and uh, it's um, uh, it, it's important. It, so why do we have a, a Life Guardian Foundation? Because that's what we do: protect and preserve life. And people find us, and we're able to help uh, 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 a, a lot of people. And uh, not only with the brain death issue, but issues now at this time. You know, I have, have a man in New York that I'm uh, helping uh, because of his daughter. I have a, a, a lady in California that that uh, helping her mo- mother, that kind of thing. And they get into situations and they 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 want their relative to live, but they don't have many places to to uh, uh, to turn. Uh, the Ter- Terry Schiavo uh, Foundation. Uh, they take a stand uh, uh, to protect and preserve life also. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, they, uh, um, and 
So each person has to do this, and they, they need to get busy and do it now, learn about these issues from uh, the, uh, those three organizations, and then whatever you do, Marsha, to educate the people. But they must learn about it. They must learn about it as much as they can before their relative gets into the situation, because then it's much more difficult to deal with it. Uh, so so um, I encourage everybody to, uh, uh, they need to know, to say no at the license bureau, no to the procedure of the apnea test. They need to get a power of attorney, especially when you get to be 18. You need to have a power of attorney. And and uh, the power of attorney, the only thing the power of attorney should be able to do is protect and preserve your life. The, the power of attorney shouldn't be there to end your life. It should be to protect and preserve your life. The laws are all set up to to make you get less treatment uh, when, in fact, all you have to do is don't be concerned about getting too much treatment. The odds are you're not going to get too much treatment. There's too many things involved to um, make treatment get stopped. So you have to have something to protect and preserve your life. Um, so far as uh, uh, you'll, you'll never live one second longer than what God says anyway. The ventilator, by the way, only works when somebody is alive. Uh, uh, the ventilator doesn't keep them alive. It can only be effective when they are alive. And granted, if you can't take a breath, you're going to die. But the ventilator doesn't make you stay alive. The ventilator just helps you to have respiration and is all that it does. And it only works when you are alive. When uh, people uh, get on ventilators, they die on the ventilator. When the, when the ventilator, when you're dead, the ventilator won't do anything. The, the ventilator, by the way, is a, a machine that, that pushes the air in. It doesn't push it out. It's only the living person that pushes it out. It only pushes it in. They, our, our body is such the way that we breathe. We take a breath in, and then our, our lungs and our chest wall are uh, somewhat analogous uh, uh, to the rubber band. They, that in the sense that it can store energy uh, for to get out. The rubber band, when we pick it up, it's as limp as can be, and we stretch it, and it can store energy. So when we let let it go, then it bounces back. That's the way we breathe, and it it happens the way you and I are breathing. That our our muscles of the chest wall, our diaphragm, uh, um, contract, and that makes the the uh, air spaces get bigger and the air goes in. And when that that stops, then the recoil, the elastic properties of the chest wall and the diaphragm is what pushes the air out. It's the same way on the ventilator. The, uh, the ventilator only pushes the air in. It only works when you're alive. When you're dead, the ventilator won't do anything. Don't worry. You won't get the ventilator for too long. Uh, and just, just know that it's... Uh, a very good treatment and helps a lot of people. And and really, when we put somebody on the ventilator these days, our goal and objective is to get them off the ventilator as quickly as possible because it's a, uh, it's a, something to help them uh, tie them over. Same way with the feeding tube, something to tie them over. Uh, and and so 
these kinds of treatments are good to do, and and people have to uh, learn, protect, and preserve life, and uh, don't do anything to hasten death or shorten life, and be very careful about these medications. Incidentally, morphine, you should know that the first effect of morphine is to decrease the cough. That's the first thing. And when cough gets decreased, then what you get is pneumonia and heart failure. And, and of course, if morphine is given in larger doses, it makes breathing stop. Uh, um, Ativan, I have so many uh, experiences that, that are not good with Ativan. People get mixed up and confused, and, and uh, it's just so much better uh, not to uh, not not to use those things. In fact, is I have it put on my record uh, on my chart that I'm allergic to Ativan, and they and that's the only way to keep them from giving it to me. Um, oh, that's uh, a good and idea. And so that's one of the things that you can learn. If you don't want something, put say you're allergic to it, and then that'll stop. And the medical records and pharmacists they're all alert to those things that that if you're allergic you won't get them. So that that's one of the thing one of the ways to uh, avoid them if you don't want them. So you could say you're allergic to morphine, Ativan, fentanyl, yeah. Seroquel, Haldol. I mean, you could list those down and say I'm allergic to them. And if the doctor says what happens, uh, you know, I quit breathing. Now, Right. Yes. Now, now you have to be very careful, though, as to what, how far you want to carry those things, because those medications are good things to help people when they when they have a broken leg, for instance, uh, to get morphine or fentanyl till uh, till the painful part uh, goes by. Pain, by the way, is uh, is built into the body uh, to. Uh, uh, to stimulate healing, uh, and it's also to tell you that something's wrong, and and so to uh, the pain and suffering are different things, and and the the society is all geared into no pain. Well, uh, uh, pain is built in to tell you that something's wrong. Pain is built in to stimulate healing, and so I I don't want people to suffer, but uh, right. Uh, but right. Uh, these medications have to be um, used uh, uh, very cautiously, responsibly. Okay, I, I don't yes, mean to cut you off, but we're we're kind of no, at our end. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on tonight. You've given us a lot of information, and I'm going to repost out there on our site. We have Murdered by Hospice Facebook group, and I'm going to repost some of the information that you gave us tonight, and. I just want to tell everybody to continue to try to make a difference, tell your stories. If you want to tell your story on the show, my email is listed, marciajoiner2018 at gmail.com. And everybody has the right to write the last chapter of your life. Somebody else shouldn't be writing your last chapter in your story. And we will be back in two weeks on May the 15th. Thank you so much, Dr. Byrne, for coming on. You have been Marcia, a pleasure thank to you. listen to. Marcia, thank you for yeah. inviting me. And and, uh, and uh, your audience, thank you for listening. If we can help, ask Marcia if she knows how to get a hold of me. Uh, Dr. Sounds Byrne? Great. Marty? Yeah. 
yes, Dr. Byrne, I want to have you back on my show. You've just blown me away tonight. Um, you've crossed Hasn't over into been? areas that I cover. And, uh, Marcia, this was a stellar interview. Um, but I, I would like you to consider coming back on my show. Uh, you need to be out there more. That's all I know. I've never heard anybody speak so honestly about this stuff, and it's information people need to have. So I hope you'll consider that. So knowledgeable. Uh, Yes. And, Marcia, thank you. Like I say, yeah. We'll do it. I I can't do it for a couple of weeks because I'm crowded for the next couple of weeks. But then after that, I can do it. But we can save a spot for me. (laughs) All right. Yeah, (laughs) I definitely say. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I definitely all right. think you need to be back on. You've yep. got a ton of information yes. for our listeners. Yeah, yes. you need to do okay. that, too. Follow up. Okay. Bye. Okay. Thanks okay. a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye. And good night, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye.